Okay, let's uh, just bow our hearts again as we turn to God's word this morning. Father, as we consider the world in which we live, Father, as we look upon those that seem to be so successful in this life, Lord, those whom your word calls the godless, the wicked, the fools, the simple. Father, and we see so often how they seem to have everything they want. And Father, as we've just heard in your word how, Lord, the psalmist was just torn and asked that question, Lord, is it worth it, all this striving to follow you? But then, Father, when we consider their end, and when we consider our end, we realize, Father, that this isn't just about the days in which we live now. The decision that we have made to follow you, Lord, not only will be vindicated in this life, but in the light of eternity, we will see blessings beyond our imagining. And so, Father, we pray that you strengthen us. And as we turn to your word this morning, as we look at these practical books of instruction, just give us insight and understanding, Lord. Just renew the confidence that we have in you. Lord, may we not grow weary or lose heart. But Lord, as your word reminds us, knowing that in due season we shall reap if we don't faint. Lord, just give us that strength, we pray. And to speak to us now through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying through the Bible in a year, this ambitious project we've taken on. Obviously, we can't hit every single detail in every single book. Um, And this morning, what we're going to try and do is to summarize the book of Ecclesiastes and also Song of Solomon. These are two incredible books of instruction. Now, we've mentioned before, they fall into this category uh, of the poetical books, sometimes also referred to as the wisdom literature. So we have typically Job, Psalms, Proverbs. We've looked at those over the last few weeks. And then these last two, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Um, they have the same author. Um, Solomon is the author of both of these books and uh, we'll see uh, some of his wisdom coming through and we'll see some of the errors as well uh, that Solomon was uh, noted for in scripture. We mentioned and have looked already, Oswald Chambers broke the the wisdom literature down into kind of God's how-to series. So Job being a book that deals with how to suffer and we've seen that already, Psalms how to pray, Proverbs how to act. But Ecclesiastes now is how to enjoy And we see that God does want us to enjoy life. And indeed, that's how we should live our life. So, first of all, the theme of the book is really how to live life. Now, we all go through those moments, don't we, where we wake up and, you know, is it worth carrying on? You know, the pressures of life around us, the responsibilities, the expectations and so on. You know, and sometimes you just, you can have fall into those moments where you think, you know, do I really matter to anybody? Do I have any real place or purpose? What do I contribute? You know, and we can all get into that kind of melancholy and a little bit um, um, uh, self-seeking uh, in some ways in terms of just the way we, we think about the world we live in and our uh, relationship to it. Well, Solomon really addresses this. We all have these same kind of feelings and emotions from time to time. How should we live life? And the question that really Solomon asks is, is life just vanity? Is it all just a waste of time, all the effort we put in? Well, Solomon is going to use that word 38 times in this book of Ecclesiastes. The word simply means it's emptiness or futility. So really, is life just empty? Is there nothing to show for it at the end? Is it futile? A vapor that vanishes quickly leaves nothing behind. 
The Jewish writer Shalom Echim once described life as a blister on top of a tumour and a boil on top of that. And again, probably some of us can, can relate to these things. At times, we sometimes feel life is like this, don't we? American poet Carl Sandburg compared life to an onion. You peel it off one layer at a time, and sometimes you weep. Again, we can recognize that in our own experience. Uh, George Bernard Shaw said that life was a series of inspired follies. Is that really all that life is? To many people, that's how they view life. It's kind of like, you know, we're born... You know, we end up going, getting a job, we pay taxes, and then we die. And, you know, that's, to many people, their kind of brief summary of life. Well, we're going to see that Solomon's summary is very different. Solomon, as we get to the conclusion of this book, is going to tell us that life is a school. And we're to learn the lessons. And we're to learn them well. Because life actually is a stewardship. It's something that God has given us that we're actually to look after for him and for his glory. And ultimately... The real secret to living is to fear God, our creator. The problem is for most of the world, they live now in a a kind of a mindset and a paradigm that says there is no God. God has been done away with. Of course, we have the the supposed theory of evolution, which has done away with the need for God. We've said so many times, there is no foundation. There's no basis for the theory of evolution. It's not scientifically um, credible uh, in any way. And yet so many people have been duped into thinking that, well, that's it. God's been proven now to be not necessary or or not existing at all. And so life now is just this kind of stumbling through, trying to make the best of it. And so people don't fear God. So they miss out on the real basis, the foundation of living a good and successful life. One breakdown of this actually from Chuck Misler, uh, looking at the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, is just looking in the first couple of chapters as the the quest by personal experiment. Now we're going to see that Solomon just tries everything. It's kind of, you know, let's see what we get from this particular thing or that particular thing. Will this bring me pleasure? Will that bring me happiness? And then the next couple of chapters, for three through five, uh, the quest by general observation, you know, looking at the world around us, looking at the things that we can see, looking at society, looking at what other people are doing, and looking at what makes them happy. You know, we see so many people that are in the, the swim society, so many successful people whose lives are empty. I mean, it's incredible how many celebrities and uh, key uh, people in in the the public eye end up committing suicide. You know, they have money, they have wealth, they have position, they have recognition, and yet they have nothing. So all of those things, you know, from our observation, clearly aren't the answer to the conundrum here. The next few chapters from chapter 6 through 8, well, the question is really looking at practical morality. Um, And the conclusion really Solomon reaches is material things can't satisfy the soul. And Solomon will admit that he's tried these things. He tried to see if he could find satisfaction in this or that or the other. And then to round out the book, it's this um, real reviewing and and conclusion of his quest, all the things that he's learned and so on. So uh, breaking it down a little bit further... The first chapter, we're going to get an introduction. We're going to read through chapter 1 in a minute because it's a great introduction to the book in itself anyway. And the question that I ask there, is life worth, with, worth living? Is it just vanity or is there victory that can be had? And Solomon will talk a little bit about the cycles of life. Indeed, there are cycles. Things do kind of go round and round. And we're in that kind of situation. It's how to live within that environment. The second chapter really looks at the futility of wealth. And, of course, the certainty of death. 
So actually, you know, we're going to go through life, we're going to earn that which we earn, but then we're going to die anyway. Um, so really the conclusion that Solomon draws there is, so we might as well enjoy life on the way through, because there is this certainty of death. The third and fourth chapters, really Solomon's kind of suggesting that we kind of take note of what's going on around us. Look up, look within ourselves, look ahead, look where we're going, look at the outcome of the things that we get into. Consider you know, our steps and ponder our ways and things. and then Look around us, but again, enjoy life as we go through. And it's kind of builds, or this book builds to a conclusion as we go through. The fifth and sixth chapter, really very much, don't rob God. Now, of course, the whole concept of this is very alien to the world. But we shouldn't defraud the Lord in anything, certainly in terms of our own selves being given to him. But also don't rob others and don't rob yourself. And actually, by some of the choices we make, we can actually rob ourselves of the peace and the joy that we should have in this life. Chapter 7 through 8, we see that wisdom makes life better. Now, last time we were looking in Proverbs and we see how wisdom is so important to really understanding. And true wisdom, again, comes from the fear of the Lord. Wisdom isn't this manly or man-made uh, understanding of things. Wisdom is divine. It comes from God. It's not something that we decide that we choose. Wisdom is something that is divinely inspired and we learn of God and God's ways through his word. But wisdom does make life better. And it will help us see life clearly. Of course, we also have the problem of evil that we wrestle with uh, along with this. And again, that's addressed uh, in those chapters. In chapters 9 and 10, it's really this whole meeting your last enemy. Um, the, the language that's used is quite interesting. Um, as uh, Solomon talks about the parts of the body as we get older and those parts of the body start failing. And uh, so on as we get closer to the end of our days. Um, speaks also there of the danger of folly. Again, these ideas, a lot of them uh, we see echoed through the book of Proverbs in various places. And then the final couple of chapters, chapters 11 and 12, really again we have this conclusion that Solomon gives us, that life really is an adventure. Yeah, there's there's, uh, troubles and struggles and trials on the way, but it is an adventure. But the way we're to live life is to live by faith. Of course, in the New Testament, Paul makes it very clear that we shouldn't walk by sight but we should walk by faith. But it's hard to walk by faith because we see so many things around us and we tend to <coughs> address and assess everything by the things in, in the natural uh, mind. I was, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think a Bible study, uh, I think it was. Uh, I don't quite know why I did this, but I was walking home from the station a few weeks ago uh, after getting off the train. And um, you know, when you kind of do the same walk every day, it gets a bit monotonous. So I thought, I know what I'll do to, to liven things up a bit. I'll see how many steps I can take with my eyes shut. So I managed to do five. Yeah, I know, I know. But just bear with me. I took about five steps and I had to open my eyes. And then, you know, and I got to a nice, really bit of open you know, ground in front of me. There was you know, nowhere falling off the curb at this particular. So I thought, okay, listen. So I got 10 steps. Well, I carried on doing this. It was quite exciting. The, the, the walk home went very quickly. I actually managed to get up to 30 steps. But boy, is it quite scary. You know there's nothing in front of you. You've looked ahead. At one point, I was in a very wide open space. Uh, and there was no way I was going to bump into anything. But the moment you get beyond that initial few steps, you can't see. And I knew there was nothing there. But my mind was saying, but what if? You know, when we walk by faith, it's at literally closing our eyes and trusting the Lord. It really is just stepping out and saying, okay, Lord, I can't see, but I'm going to trust you. And that's the way God says we should live our life. Why? Because he knows what's best for us. We'll look at some scripture in a moment. 
Solomon's conclusion again is that life is a gift, as we said a moment ago. It's a stewardship. It's something that God has given to us. We don't often look at life in that kind of way. You know, we, we tend to think of other things maybe as that we've been given a ministry or a gift and we're supposed to do something with it for God. But your very life is a gift that God has given you. And how are you using your life for him? And that really is the key. Because if you're using your life for you... Well, then all these negative things that Solomon experienced are what you'll experience. But if you're using your life for God, well, then there'll be great blessing and you will indeed enjoy it. Well, you know, we look at the best that the world can offer and Solomon tries wisdom, the worldly wisdom, and he finds that it comes up short. It doesn't solve anything. You know, the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest man that has ever lived. And certainly we know from the visit of the Queen of Sheba, she tested him with hard questions and he answered all of them, no problem. And yet all of that worldly wisdom that he had, all of his understanding, didn't prevent him from making some really serious mistakes. So wisdom in and of itself is not the answer, certainly worldly wisdom. Solomon tries pleasure in chapter 2. We see that he has a go at the things that he thinks will bring him happiness. Of course, happiness is very transient, isn't it? And the world, you know, has this idea of being happy. You know, the Bible speaks of joy. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, should I say. You know, happiness is very much, it's very fickle. It's very subject to the, the experience or the situation we're in. Joy is something that's deep-rooted. Something that the circumstances cannot change. And that's what God would have for us. But Solomon tries pleasure. tries all sorts of things. He tries entertainment. Well, don't we live in a world that loves to try entertainment? You know, we have an amusement industry. Uh, And, of course, uh, the word amuse, when you prefix a word with A, it means not. Muse means to think. So, really, the whole entertainment industry is about getting you to not think. That's what amusement is. And, of course, you know, when you think of television and all these other things... Satan wants us to just stop thinking. He wants everybody in the world to stop thinking. The moment we start thinking, well, all of a sudden, then, the Lord can start to speak to us as well. You know, and, and it's, it's one of those funny things in life that so much of our time is spent not thinking rather than musing. David in Psalms says that while he mused, the fire burned. You know, speaking of just thinking of things of God. Solomon tries architecture. Not tried that myself, um, but he tries that, looking for fulfilment in the projects that he undertakes, you know, to try and bring some sort of satisfaction and meaning and purpose. Of course, you know, we have great monuments, don't we? We look in the, the ancient world, and there's some wonderful buildings that have been built, and, and they last, they outlast the people that have built them, they survive through generations. But does that really solve the problem? Does that bring happiness to the people that uh, are involved in the initial projects? Effectively, he says, try gardening. I quite enjoy gardening. I find it quite therapeutic. You know, there's something quite nice about doing uh, work in a garden and looking back when you finished it and thinking, actually, that looks nice. But then two or three weeks later, you've got to go back and do it again. You know? And if anybody's seen my grass, if you want to bring a mower around, I'd appreciate it. No. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It just doesn't ever bring you that real joy and satisfaction and peace. You know, again, Solomon's tried all of the things, with cattle and livestock and so on, music and art. So many people throw their lives into these things. 
Um, philosophy. Um, a lot of the world gets caught up with in philosophy and the whole idea of uh, knowledge and thinking and understanding things. And, but Solomon says he's tried that. It didn't solve the problem. It didn't answer his questions. Ritualism. So many people are into ritualism in terms of their religions. Most of the people in this country that will go to church today go because it's a ritual they do. They don't go because they have a relationship with God. They simply go to church because that's what they do. And it's not just Christianity. Because within Islam and within most other faiths, you've got so many people that don't have any genuine, real, heartfelt belief. It's just what they do. Solomon says that doesn't solve the problem. Wealth, again, doesn't solve the problem. Reputation, again, as we said, doesn't solve the problem. So Solomon lists all of these things that he's had a go at, that he's tried, and uh, none of those things solve the problem. Well, the contrast to all of this in John 10.10, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus says. He's come to give those who are his an abundant life, a life that is overflowing. That's what we should have as Christians. We shouldn't be in that position of, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm just getting by, you know, or I'm surviving or I'm all right, I suppose. You know, and even as Christians, sometimes we have that answer. Somebody, once uh, <coughs> a Christian commentator was uh, in conversation, somebody said, oh, how are you? And he said, oh, better than I deserve. You know, for all of us, that's true. We are far better than we deserve. You know, whatever our physical state or whatever, if we are born again, we are better than we deserve. And, you know, you realize the abundant blessings already that are poured upon us. And as I said earlier on, you know, the things that are yet to come, You know, we get glimpses of what God has prepared for us in the light of eternity. But right now, we should have this abundant life. I love uh, this paraphrase. This is in the Living Bible. The Living Bible, although it has titled Bible, it's actually a paraphrase. In a sense, it's a commentary on the Bible. But there's some useful things in there. And Acts 20, verse 23, 24, verse 24 particularly, I remember this as a child. It really stuck with me. And it just simply says here, but life is worth nothing. Unless I use it for the, doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about God's mighty kindness and love. The actual, uh, the King James version of that verse, um, Paul again, speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus, about to go back to Jerusalem, knowing that he may well face death if he goes. And the opening verse is, but none of these things move me. Paul is saying, you know, none of those things worry me, they concern me, they're not going to shake me, they won't shake my confidence in God. He says, neither count I my life dear unto myself. Again, life's worth nothing unless we use it for doing the work assigned us by the Lord Jesus. And if we use our life for God and for that purpose of telling others about what God has done, being a witness, you know, we were... I'm talking, um, I'm sure when this was recently, we were having a conversation. Um, it was one of the meetings where I think Bible study or Sunday or whatever. And, and we're just talking about the, the reason that we're still here. You know, from the cross onwards, the Lord could have taken us back to heaven or from the resurrection onwards. You know, Jesus is the first fruit of those that raised. There's nothing in God's scheme or plan that means we have to stay on earth right now. It's purely God has left us here for two reasons one, to train us, and two, to be a witness. And we're going through the processes we go through because God is training us for things that are yet to come, things that we don't even imagine. But also for us to be a witness. The Jews were called to be a witness to the world. They failed. 
We have three vines mentioned in scripture. There's the vine of the earth, which is this kind of false religious system that we see going through the ages. We have the vine of Israel. They were supposed to be this uh, representative of God, this amb- these ambassadors for God, to bring the knowledge of God to the world. They failed. And then, of course, there is the true vine, Jesus Christ. And through him and through the church, with his Holy Spirit indwelling us, we're to be this light, this salt that, that changes, that adds flavor, that brings the knowledge of God into the world in which we live. That's the purpose of life. If we live life for God, there's real blessing and purpose in it. Let's just read through chapter 1 and we'll just make some comments as we go through. We start then, the words of the preacher. Okay, obviously this is uh, Solomon. This title he gives him to himself here. The preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? Let me just uh, add a comment from 1 Corinthians because Solomon says, what profit in all the work that we do? Well, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the key, the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, so Solomon asks the question, is it all just labor in vain? No, if your work is in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. If it's in your own enterprise, your own work, your own pursuits. Oh, and by the way, don't think I'm saying that we should give up our day jobs. Because, you know, we are on assignment. The Lord has placed us where we are. And what we do during the day is your ministry. I love, Chuck Mills often asks the question, raise your hands if you're in full-time ministry. And normally a few people put their hand up. And then he asks the question, who again, who here is a Christian? And then he asks the question again, who is in full-time ministry? We're all in full-time ministry. Every moment of every day, we are serving the Lord. And our day jobs are purely the assignment that God has given us to us for now. That we may learn and grow, part of that training program. But also that we may be witnesses for him. Well, we carry on in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes. One generation passes away, and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also arises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to his place where he arose. (laughs) Of course, that is true, isn't it? The sun gets up, goes down, gets up, goes down. And the question then is, so how are you going to live life? Everything does carry on as as it is. For all our days are passed away, in thy wrath we spend our years, this is from Psalm 90, sorry, um, as a tale that is told, the days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And then the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So Solomon asking the question, of course we find these answers in scripture, and, and that the way we're to live life, to understand that our days are short, you know, that we have a limited time span on earth, so how are we going to number our days, how are we going to live? Again, applying our hearts unto godly wisdom. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1 verse 6, picking up, the wind goes towards the south and turns about unto the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Now, just a quick comment here. This is incredible. Because Solomon is telling us that, talking of the wind and how it works, and talking about the circuits. 
So possibly we have the world's first meteorologist here. Solomon is bringing these things to our attention. Now, of course, we understand today that the wind does work on particular circuits. And when you look at your weather forecast and you see it on the telly, you see that these circuits, the wind has a particular pattern, the way things go. But then it also talks yeah, uh, about the hydrocycle. The way that it rains and so on, the, the rain comes from the rivers, of course, into the sea. Uh, the evaporation occurs, the water is then evaporated, and then it falls again on the hills and mountains, goes back into the rivers, and we have this pattern. And this is a hydrocycle summarized around about 1000 BC. I just mention this because the Bible truly is an incredible book. There's no other writings of antiquity that are so full of scientifically verifi- verifiable facts. The Bible's amazing with the details it gives of these things. Verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. It's almost like we're in an endless loop. Things go round and round and round. There's a great quote, I think it's by Hegel, says, the one thing that man learns from history is that man can learn nothing from history. You know, we don't learn from the mistakes of the past. We repeat the same things. The same things go on and on. But there's a very interesting uh, point to mention here, particularly in regard to biblical prophecy. The thing that has been is that which shall be. You know, this isn't just an opinion. This is the way things actually are. And it's funny because as we look at God's word, we've got so many models depicting what shall be. Things that have happened. The likes of Nimrod, the world's first dictator. We have this kind of one world religion, this one world leader. And of course we're heading towards those days now. We've got Nebuchadnezzar again as another uh, type of the Antichrist. This king who sets up this image to be worshipped and causes all people to bow down and worship and so on. And then we have around about 167 BC, this uh, individual Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll talk more when we get to the book of Daniel. And this individual that uh, offers this sacrifice of of a pig in the altar and desecrates the altar in Jerusalem and destroys things. It's an incredible forerunner. Daniel refers to this as the abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus references it, but also speaks of it in a future tense of something that is yet to come. So we find actually through scripture, we have so many models of that which has been being a precursor of that which shall be. It's a model in advance. And we can learn a lot about the future by understanding biblically things that have taken place in the past. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. It has been already of old time, which is before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those things that shall come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail has God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is uh, wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate. I have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yes, my heart um, had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Isn't that true? You know, you look at children and how happy and carefree children are. And as we grow in life, as we learn more, as we understand more, 
doesn't increase our grief and our sorrow. Well, we can't obviously read through every chapter, but just a couple of highlights from chapter 2. Verse 15, we just pick up and it says, Then said I in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happened even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise man than the fool. Uh, forever seeing that which now is in the days to come shall be all forgotten um, how dieth the wise man as the fool so Solomon comparing us saying that, that it's no different for the wise and the fool well this is why this morning we read through psalm 73 because the psalmist there is a psalm of asaph he, he asks the same question but then he makes his com- comment verse 16 when i thought to know this it was too painful to me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. You know, if you just look in the short term, you will get frustrated. But we need to look at the bigger picture. We need to look at God's plan and the incredible promises we have in God's word of all that lays ahead for us. Chapter 3, very famous chapter. We have this uh, a time for everything, a time for every season under heaven, we're told. Um, but just a couple of verses to pull out. One uh, interesting, in verse 20 of chapter 3, we're told, All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and turn to the dust again. Now, of course, scientifically that's true. Our bodies are made up of the various uh, elements, 17 elements or so, that you find in the dust of the ground. So, absolutely true statement it's it's true but then he says who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth it's interesting because Solomon here is making a very clear distinction between humans and animals just another biblical um, proof text in, in a sense to show that we're not evolved animals we are very different and distinct God created the animals but he's created man in his image and his likeness. And we have these component parts, body, soul, and spirit. The spirit, as we've said, is very much our conscience, the, the, the God consciousness part of us. And uh, we're told that when we die, that spirit returns to God who gave it. Of course, animals are not so. Chapter 4, picking up verse 9, another interesting verse is, Two are better than one. Kind of a real... Uh, uh, comment here on people that like to be independent. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Great example of this yesterday, nice sunny day. Decided to get a little, got a little paddling wall, a little pool, inflatable pool that we blew up, filled it with water. It was very cold. And uh, I got in there, the girls got in there. All of a sudden, the girls were, were laughing and things, and uh, they, they keep joking about Daddy's big tummy at the moment. And, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, they started to get cold, and they started cuddling up to me. And I said, now you don't mind, do you? Because three lying together, we kept each other warm, and it was quite nice, even though the water still was quite cold. But, you know, the, the point is true, isn't it? That, you know, we try and do things sometimes on our own, and actually, we fall down, we fail. We need others. And we're told... I love verse 12. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Great scripture. So applicable for marriage. You know, a marriage should be a threefold cord. There should be the husband, the wife, and the saviour. 
Jesus should be the centre of any marriage. And that threefold cord is not quickly broken. But it applies in pretty much any area of our life as well. You know, when you have three people together that are united, particularly the things of the Lord, you know, in our, with our eldership as we have it now within the church, we have three couples. Um, and it's not that we don't want other people long term or whatever, but at the moment it's that we, there's a strength there in that unity that God has given. You know, and it's, it applies in so many areas of life. In chapter 5, there's really a, a chapter that just reminds us to be reverent before our holy God. Keep thy foot when thou go to the house of God. You know, sometimes we, we get quite flippant and, and familiar about the things of God and, and so on. But we're told here, you know, just be mindful. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. And then we're told, be not rash with thy mouth and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, a lot of churches we see, and particularly the type of churches that are often depicted on Christian television, oh, people are so hasty to come out with their amens, amens, you know. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it gets quite comical because, you know, you, somebody's maybe giving a testimony and they say, you know, uh, you know uh, and then I got into drugs and somebody will come out, praise the Lord! And, you know, like, no, actually, you won't really listen to that, will you? <laughs> you know, and it's people are very, very hasty just to say whatever. And we're told here, don't be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Great lessons for us to learn here. When thou vowest a vow, we're told in verse 4, defer not to pay it. For he, he speaking God, has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou should not vow then thou should vow and not pay. You know, when we're in these, these times in fellowship together, in church, in worship times, you know, and you make some sort of commitment to God, you know, don't make those kind of commitments unless you truly and genuinely are intent on fulfilling this vow, giving to the Lord what you say you're going to give. You know, we have a great example in Acts, the beginning of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira, who make this great vow of wanting to give everything to God, and then they say, well, you know what, well, we could keep a bit of it for ourselves. You know, God is not mocked. Chapter 9, just again, just picking up some key verses. Uh, Verse 10, I love this verse. Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. We have a finite time on earth, and we're told here that whatever you do, do it with all your might. I love Foswell Chambers' comment. He says, if it be for just five minutes, let it be done well. Of course, Paul has his own take on that. He says, do everything as unto the Lord. You know, we're not to just do things sloppily and that will do. You know, we've got a God who created everything perfect. Everything the best it could possibly be. Why would his creation settle for, oh, well, that will do. It's okay. You know, surely we should strive to do things as best as they can be done. You know, David, when he speaks of his musicians, speaks of them playing skillfully. Not, well, if anybody wants to have a go, just, you know, whatever. No, play skillfully. Do the things that we do as unto the Lord, to give glory to him. And if it be for five minutes, again, I'm totally with Oswald Chambers, let it be done well. As, As Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Well, chapter 10, 
Another key verse here, verse 8, it says, He that digs a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaks a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. I just highlight this, we mentioned this in the book of Job, because the Lord had put this hedge of protection around Job. And it's the same, it's no exclusive offer only for Job, for all those whose hearts belong to the Lord. There's this hedge of protection. There's many blessings spoken of through scripture. Blessed is the man that. And then we're given the condition and so on. And so by our actions, by our obedience, we can bring many blessings upon our own life. But if we break this hedge of protection, he that digs a pit shall fall into it. And whoso breaks a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. We open ourselves up to the attacks of the enemy. The great scripture we find in Second Chronicles 16.9 um, King Asa, in reference here, um, the prophet comes and speaks to King Asa, and one of the verses he gives him is this, the Lord looks effectively to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. The Lord looks to and fro throughout the earth, we're told. And the Lord wants to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Of course, Asa, in that particular example, his heart wasn't completely God's. And as a result, in essence, a serpent bit him. He ended up with a real problem. This ongoing war then to the end of his life with King Baasher of uh, the northern kingdom. So many examples you see of this in scripture. There are so many blessings that we can have. But if we step outside of those blessings, if we're disobedient, then we will find that there are problems that will come our way. And God allows those things very often to chasten us, to bring us back to him. In the final chapter then, we have the conclusion of this whole book. It's not a a big book, I encourage you. uh, If you've not already read it through this year, then just sit down and read it through. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, says Solomon. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This is... This is what it's about. If we fear God and keep his commandments, we'll have a blessed life, an enjoyable life. A life that even though there will be trials that will come along, there will be an underlying joy behind all of those things because we know that we're in the right place with God. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You know, that's a scary verse if you didn't have the blood of Jesus covering your sin. If God is to bring every work into judgment, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought and said, if that were to be replayed before the throne of God on judgment day and you didn't have a saviour who has washed all of the sin away, that would be a terrible, scary situation to be in. And it will be for many. So, the book of Ecclesiastes. A very practical book on how to live. Song of Solomon, on the other hand, is a book on how to love. Uh, very interesting book, also called the Song of Songs because of the opening um, verse that we have in the book itself. One uh, commentator talked about the book about being a celebration of married love. And it says uh, the addresses, the, the things that we have recorded here, instead of being dialogues of two people talking to each other, are frequently sustained monologues, that's one person talking, others listening, or soliloquies or apostrophes. So, you know, sometimes when you talk to yourself type thing, and that's the way that this kind of poetry is presented in this book here. 
Another commentator said, The book is a wedding song containing recollections of the antinatural experiences of Solomon and Shulamite. The events mentioned are not recorded as having occurred in the order stated, but depict the emotions of the lovers in times of union and separation. Let me just explain what he's saying here. It's, it's very much like when you watch a film, and sometimes you start with the, the end of the film, and then you go back and then you get the, the pieces that make up the, the story. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a little bit like that. It's not one sequential story from the first verse. Uh, we, start with, we start a little bit later on in the timeline and then we jump back to the beginning and then so on as we go through. Chuck Misler says, It is perhaps the most difficult and mysterious book in the entire Bible. A cursory glance at the song's history of interpretation reveals a diversity of opinion, unequaled in the study of any other biblical work. The Song of Solomon has been interpreted as an allegory uh, or an extended type, so the stuff we have on the surface is really pointing to something else. A drama involving either two or three main characters. Some have suggested, and typically not uh, biblical commentators as such, but a collection of Syrian wedding songs in which the groom played the role of a king and the bride played the role of a queen. Some have suggested even it was just a collection of pagan fertility cult liturgies uh, or an anthology of disconnected songs extolling human love. So lots of different ideas about what the book really is all about. There's a kind of cast of characters that we need to just uh, highlight and be aware of as we look at this. We have, obviously, Solomon, the king. We have the Shulamite, the, the, the woman, the girl in the piece. Uh, this country maiden from northern Israel. Very, very beautiful, um, pure. And she filled Solomon with love for her and uh, helped him see uh, the original beauty of this marriage relationship that God had designed between one man and one woman. So that's, again, what we see with her. Uh, there's also the daughters of Jerusalem that are mentioned, the kind of court attendants and so on. And there's also her brothers um, that are at home. So those are kind of the characters we're going to come across as we see this. The history of interpretation of the book, um, right from the early uh, uh, centuries, there's been this question mark as to whether the book should really be in scripture. Now we may think, well, why is there that question? Well, there's a number of issues. There's, on the surface, there's no indication within the book of any connection with religion as such, and God's name is only mentioned indirectly on one occasion. As we said a moment ago, no book has provoked more controversy in Scripture than this one in terms of how it should be understood. Uh, There's a lot of debate over Revelation and some of the other books, but this book really kind of sits out amongst the rest. But interestingly, Spurgeon and Moody both listed this book as their favourite in the Bible. John Gill, um, back in the kind of Reformation times, uh, preached 122 sermons on this book in the early 1700s. There's a lot of depth here that we need to be aware of. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote 86 sermons on the first two chapters alone. The only reason he didn't carry on is because he was put to death. 86 sermons just on the first couple of chapters. Oregon uh, wrote 12 volumes on the Song of Songs. So we need to be aware that this isn't an easy book straight off to understand and to, to get to grips with, but there's a huge amount of depth here. 
reminded of what we're told in Proverbs about it. It's the glory of God to conceal a, a thing, but the honor of kings to search out a matter. It very much applies here. Interestingly, during the persecutions of the Reformation period, this little book provided great comfort to the victims. It said that there are more quotations from the Song of Songs on the tombstones of the Covenanters in Scotland than from any other book of the Bible. So clearly this is a book that have provided great comfort through the ages to, to saints. Interestingly, it's not mentioned in the New Testament, but... There's a number of allusions that can be cited which seemingly are drawn from this book. I'll leave the notes there. They'll be available afterwards. But for a number of portions in the New Testament, um, references that seem to be drawn from the ideas that we find in this book. Many, because they haven't really understood the meaning of the book, again, as I said, a question is right to be in the Bible. But interestingly, it's the only book of the Bible with love as its sole theme which is very interesting in itself. Well, also it has no direct messianic message as such. However, the underlying picture here is of a king leaving his place to come and claim his bride. And that, straight away, we recognize as being very messianic in its ideas and concepts. The, this king then departs for a time only to come again to receive this bride to himself. And we'll talk a bit more in a moment about this. Rabbis saw it as depicting God and Israel. And of course, Israel are represented in Scripture, um, and a number of the, the minor prophets particularly, as being the wife of Jehovah. But early Christian scholars saw it very much as depicting Christ and his bride. Uh, the Shulamite in, is in the, in the, the, the Hebrew text is the, in the, femin- is the feminine form of the name Solomon. Um, so hence we have, uh, I think Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it, Mr. and Mrs. Solomon being presented here. Uh, or the Prince of Peace, as Solomon was uh, also uh, suggested referred to. And the Daughter of Peace as well. So lots of, you see, start to see the analogies as well. Well, the Jews placed the song among the holiest of all their books. They compared Solomon's writings to the temple, Ecclesiastes being the outer court, Proverbs being the holy place, and Song of Solomon being the holy of holies. Just an interesting aside from the Jewish mindset. Uh, Rabbi uh, Akiba said, In the entire world, there is nothing to equal the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. All the writings are holy. But the song of songs is most holy. Very interesting. Uh, There's 21 varieties of plants, just as an aside, and 15 species of animals that are mentioned by Solomon. Um, I just mentioned that. I mean, obviously he was renowned for knowledge and understanding. But just again, in all the books of the Bible, we have these kind of things, these factual information, things that are put in there as well. Um, as I said, it's one of the shortest books of the Old Testament, 100, only 117 verses, uh, 470 Hebrew words, but 47 of those don't appear anywhere else in the Bible, uh, are unique to this book. Okay, so what is the story of the book? Well, on the surface, we see effectively the husband and the father apparently had passed away, there's a mother, and at least two sons and two daughters. The older daughter, who's called Shulamite, is the Cinderella, if you like, of the piece here. And her brothers didn't appreciate her um, and voiced hard tasks upon her, denying her the, privilege, the privileges that a growing girl might have expected in a Jewish home. 
my mother's sons were angry with me. Um, uh, the implication is possibly half-brothers, because she says my mother's sons, so it could imply a different father and so on. That also has a very interesting overtone, uh, which we'll maybe mention in a moment. Um, she says my own vineyard I have not kept. She had no opportunity to look after herself. She was uh, some uh, burned and naturally very beautiful, very comely. Uh, one day she encounters a handsome stranger shepherd who views her as without blemish, which is very beautiful in itself. And this friendship ripens to affection and finally to love. He promises to return and make her his bride. Her brothers are very sceptical. They regard her as being deceived by this stranger. And he's gone for a long time. And of course, while he's away, she dreams of him in the darkness and Clearly she trusted him. She believed his promise that he'd return. One day there's a glorious cavalcade that arrives, this big procession. And the attendants announce, the king has sent for you. Well, again, she doesn't understand this at this point. She was in love with this shepherd. And now she's being summoned by the king. Well, obediently she responds... And when she looks into the face of the king, behold, the king was the shepherd who'd won her heart. And she says, I am my beloved, and his desire is toward me. That probably one of the most famous verses from this, uh, this Song of Songs. So that's the picture. And again, you see the whole, uh, the underlying theme there. The idea of this shepherd coming and this, this call of this bride. And then the shepherd goes away. But when he comes back, he comes back and he's the king. And then she goes with him. So the structure, I mean, very simply, you can break it down into three sections. Um, chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 5, really is a thrill of new love. Chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1 is rejoicing in marriage. And then the final part is this separation from chapter 5, verse 2 to the end, and then the reunion. That's a very quick, simple breakdown of the book. But making, bring it, bring it uh, in a little bit more focus. The first act, if you like, the first scene we get is the mutual love of Solomon, the king at this point, and the Shulamites. So this is something that is yet future in the, the timeline of things, but it, the book opens with this. So the first scene, really, is the woman's chamber of the royal palace. The bride uh, sings of her love for Solomon, and her attendants respond, and then the bride continues from there. So there's kind of toing and froing, and a female attendant is encouraged her to seek the king. <coughs> As it carries on, the second scene, we then get the royal banquet room. Solomon praises her beauty. The bride recalls their, their, their pleasant meeting when they first met. And Solomon sings his love for her. So these are things that are kind of, in a sense, at the end of the story, but that we get in the opening uh, chapter and so on. The bride sings of their place of romance, and Solomon again responds to that. And the bride relates her emotions of love. It's a very sensual book as well. We'll talk a bit more in a moment. Uh, the bride's refrain then to her maidens. The second act again continues. Uh, the first scene of that uh, is back at her abode. She sings of the episodes of her love. The bride sings of his coming to take her with him. So she's got this promise that he's going to come back. The second scene, we then get the bride dreams that she's lost her lover. In this interval, while he's away, waiting for the return, she's fearful that he may not come back, although she believes the promise. She searches for him until she finds him. Just as an aside, we're told in Scripture that those that seek God will find him. 
and then we get uh, this is a refrain uh, to that in the <coughs> the next following section the third act in a sense is then the wedding uh, the nuptial celebration uh, the first scene of that the bridegroom comes uh, the court maidens view it from the portals of the bride's chamber as the bridegroom comes to take her the bride invites the maidens to share the joy of their vows the second scene then is Solomon's love song in the bridal chamber as they lavish their love upon one another as their marriage in a sense is consummated uh, the bride responds uh, Solomon then sings to the guest at the wedding feast. Again, lots of interesting uh, parallels we can see with Christ and the church and all that's coming for us. The fourth act, love separated but reconciled again. Well, the first scene, the bride relates her sorrow, uh, her dream uh, to her maidens in their parlour. She speaks, uh, the maidens then respond and so on. The bride then poetically describes Solomon. Uh, the maidens ask questions of her and she responds to those questions. And then the second scene, uh, they're reconciled. And Solomon praises her beauty as they're brought back together. So as you go through this, you need to be aware that there's kind of a, a jumping forward and back in the timeline or so. The fifth act, well, the beauty of this woman, the Shulamite, is celebrated. Um, the first scene, the bride and her companions are talking together. The maidens are praising her. The bride amuses about her family and home, and she thinks about the things that she endured or went through. Uh, the maidens urge her to stay, and uh, the bride uh, replies in modesty, and the maidens describe her beauty in dance, and there's this kind of celebration that leads on. And then <coughs> it just carries on. Uh, the second scene of that, uh, Solomon and the Shulamite share joy together. Solomon revels in her beauty. The bride sings to her lover uh, as they return to their old home place. And the bride sings her refrain to her companions. And then the, the final uh, act is so, act six, uh, the lovers together in the country of Shulam as they kind of go back to this place again. The first uh, scene we see this love that's pledged. Uh, maidens introduce the lovers. Solomon reminisces as they stroll in her native community. And the bride pledges her love again. Solomon responds. And then uh, the final part of this, the, the, the second scene of that Act 6, as you break it down to these six separate parts uh, at her parents' home. The bride sings of her brothers of the past and the way they treated her. Her brothers respond to that. Um, the bride then sings to Solomon of her purity. And Solomon requests her to sing and so on. And the bride sings this beautiful song. So that's kind of the, the details there. There's lots of to and froing and, and everything else. You can go through those notes and go through. What I would encourage you to do is to go through the book with a commentary, okay, with a good commentary. Chuck Misler's commentary certainly I would recommend, but there's a number of others. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has um, written very detailed, extensive commentary on this. But what you need to be aware of as we look at this, I'm just going to read some quotes from some of the, the commentators, is that... Behind the text, the obvious things that we see on the surface, there's lots of, if you like, innuendo or suggestions. Um, Fruchtenbaum makes a comment that there are those who feel that this lyric poem deals primarily with the subject of biblical lovemaking. The love relationship between a man and a woman, the courtship, the wedding night, the subsequent sexual adjustments of the young couple are all fruitfully treated. Interestingly, so explicit are these aspects that because of its erotic content, the rabbis actually forbade the book to be read by anyone under the age of 30. Interesting in itself. 
Chuck Misler makes this comment. He says, here is romantic love for married couples that exceeds our greatest dreams and expectations. Here's a manual on sex that beats all secular viewpoints on how a man and a woman should make love. Glickman makes this comment. He says, sensuous love with erotic overtones is God's intent for the marriage relationship. The distortion of that relationship is no doubt a basis dimension of life, but that does not justify placing such experience or scripture song about it into the inactive file of living. What he's saying is because the world has so abused sex and everything in, in the way we live today, and obviously we live in a world that's just so riddled with pornography and pornographic images, uh, I mean, even on uh, adverts that we see billboards at the side of the road, I mean, the whole idea that sex sells, of course, we live in that society, and it does. It, it's a big marketing thing for the world. But just because the world has abused and twisted these things, we shouldn't lose sight of God's intention behind this. And Song of Songs is a very refreshing view from God's perspective of these things. Some lessons to kind of draw from the book then. Well, firstly, love is as strong as death, we're told in chapter 8, verse 6. I mean, true love really is just an incredible power. Also, jealousy is as cruel as the grave, or as cruel as Sheol. So these couple of things are contrasting in a sense. We're also told in chapter 8, verse 7, that many waters cannot quench love. You may be familiar, that verse or that particular portion in chapter 8 is often read at weddings and so on. Normally out of context without people really understanding what they're reading, but uh, nevertheless... um, Another thing to mention, love cannot be bought with money. You see, the world knows that you can buy sex with money, but you can't buy love with money. And that's something that comes out very clearly through this book. And there's this intimate love we see as being a divine gift from God. And we need to understand that God invented sex. This was God's idea way before the world got hold of it and twisted it. Hebrews 13 verse 4 talks about uh, the marriage bed being undefiled. But this is God's plan, God's intention. This is a good thing that we need to understand in the right context. But as we reflect on this beautiful celebration of married love, we've got to remember, of course, that there's this divine relationship that Christians share as the bride of Christ. As you go through this and study this, if you're a married couple, I strongly encourage you to read through this book together. And you'll start to see some of these ideas and these themes that are underlying. And as I say, if you go through with a good commentary as well, uh, it will help to us kind of make un- understand some of these, uh, these ideas and suggestions behind the text. But... As we look at this, we see this relationship between Christ and the church. And from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the shepherd who came from heaven's highest glory down to this dark world, that he may woo and win a bride for himself, he did go away, but he said, I'll come again and receive you to myself. So this is one of the most incredible things that we see. This underlying, there's, there's in a sense, there's a surface story. Then there's the, the relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And then there's the relationship between Christ and the church and all of these things. Now, a challenge for all of us. How far have we gone in our relationship to Christ? 
One of the phrases that we find occurs three times, almost like a little refrain that keeps coming back, is don't awaken love till he please. Now, in the context of the narrative as we have it, and if you look through the commentaries, they'll tell you that what we see here, there's a lot of sections that deal with, in a sense, in the sexual relationship, the whole idea of the foreplay, that if it's aroused and everything else prior to the possibility of fulfillment, it leads to frustration. Now, there's a great lesson there in terms of that marriage or the, the sexual relationship should be confined to a marriage, not outside of marriage. Because outside of marriage, then the moment you start getting involved in these things, and of course the question is how far can you go, and there's loads of books that have been written by many Christians on what is acceptable, what's not. Look, from scripture, the moment you start the process, if you're not prepared or able to go all the way, it will lead to frustration, and it will cause all sorts of potential problems long term. So we need to learn those lessons. But let's just spin this for a moment and think about our relationship with Christ. Because there are many of us that have entered into a relationship with Christ. And if I may use the the parallel, it's almost like we've kind of started to foreplay, but we're not prepared to go the whole way. You know, in our relationship with Christ, we've experienced some of the blessing of knowing what it's like to become intimate with Christ. But how committed are we? Are we prepared to give our all to Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than in a marriage relationship to have that love and that commitment and to be able to surrender yourself to each other. But that's how it should be. See, in a sense, it's a, it is, there's a very erotic kind of theme through the book, but we need to see in this that God is trying to communicate to us of how we should be toward him. You know, have we experienced, have you experienced the unspeakable pleasure of the most intimate embrace with your beloved? With Christ. You see, it's not just about saying, Well, I'm a Christian and coming to church and fellowshipping and all those things. You know, the Lord wants a much deeper relationship with us, one that we are totally prepared to say, Lord, I surrender all to you. You know, we sing that that wonderful song, I surrender all. But you know, for most of us as we sing it, there's almost a touch of hypocrisy, and we, probably our hearts are challenged as we sing songs like that. Do we really surrender all? Are we prepared to give Christ everything? It comes back to what we were saying earlier. Are we truly prepared to shut our eyes and walk by faith? Not knowing what's ahead, but just trusting him. And walking in that lovely environment where he will lead us, and guard us, and guide us, and protect us, and so on. So, a wonderful book. Both of these books, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, practical books for life. I encourage you to read them. And, you know, th- there's so much th- th- that's th- here to help us, to benefit us, to bless us, to challenge us as well. But the Song of Songs, a real challenge for me in this. I mean, actually, there's two challenges. One is, how do I treat my wife? Joy and I were sitting down, and I was uh, reading through this uh, to her the other night, and we were just kind of reading through part of the book together. And, you know, there's a challenge about his relationship, Solomon's relationship, or in a sense, Christ's relationship with his beloved. And the question is for husbands, are you like that to your beloved? But then there's also the part of the, the bride. And so it's a very practical book. Again, I'd encourage you, um, maybe on an evening when the kids are out, to, to read the book together. Uh, as uh, married couples and if you're not married read it 
But understand that God has a wonderful plan, but it's about his timing. You know, we jump outside of the boundaries and the parameters God has set. One great example in closing, the tribe of Dan in the book of Joshua were not content with the area that God had given them. They weren't content with the, the, the boundaries that God had set. They said, we want more. And so they end up taking a piece of land up north, right at the top of Israel. Crazily, it's just a small piece of land. It doesn't actually give them very much. But because they're right on the border and they get influenced by the uh, other nations that are around them, the tribe of Dan in the northern part of Israel become one of the first places to go into idolatry. Why? Because they weren't content with the boundaries that God had set. And they wanted more. And so they strove for more. They got more. But it led them into idolatry and it led them away from God. So we need to be aware that the boundaries that God sets, and particularly in regard to relationships, are there because he knows best. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we truly thank you for your word. We thank you that you address every area of our lives. Father, help us to learn from these things. Father, we just pray this morning for every married couple here. Father, we pray you bless their marriages. Father, bless every part of that marriage. And Lord, the most intimate relationships, Lord, we pray that you would make those a very special place where love is at the center and Jesus is right on the throne. Father, we pray that every marriage here will be strengthened and will be strong in you, Lord. And Father, we pray for every single person that they will understand the blessings that you have provided in life, but the boundaries you have set for protection as well. Father, we also pray that you help us to understand that if we are to enjoy this life that we are to enjoy it by living our lives for you that life is worth nothing unless we use it for the work assigned us by the Lord Jesus the work of telling others about God's mighty kindness and love so father in these practical things father we want to live that abundant life that you spoke of lord we want to live a life of blessing but lord help us to remember that that blessing comes from that fear of the lord and being prepared to walk not by faith, not by sight, but by faith. Lord, help us to walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who came as a shepherd to woo us, to win us, and will come back as the King of kings to take us home to be with him for eternity. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.